Welcome to the showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at OnStrategy1. That's OnStrategy1, the number one. Uh, For those of you who are new to us here today, we're the only platform that lets you hear the backstories from the strategists themselves. You learn the business challenges, the marketing goals, the planner's approach to the assignment, and the insights that led to the strategy. And of course, you get to see the work right here on the uh, episode page. Today, we talk with Ed Sue. Ed is Chief Strategy Officer at Publicis in New York City, working on the Samsung mobile business. We talk about Samsung and Apple and that rivalry that started uh, pretty much close to about 10 years ago now. Uh, There are so many topics, unfortunately, that are off limits when you interview someone working on the Samsung business or the Apple business. Uh, So the conversation can feel a little stifled. And it's frustrating, uh, I think, for both Ed and I. uh, but But it's understandable because of the level of secrecy and the importance of that. Uh, with these companies. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of the interview uh, had to be edited. So to counter that and to get a little deeper on the issues, I'll be recording a companion episode on Apple and Samsung's uh, rivalry with Jeffrey Kane, who recently wrote a book called Samsung Rising. Uh, Ed actually turned me on to Jeffrey, uh, who's an independent journalist uh, and writer, and he can talk about the issues that he knows about, and uh, and it's a fascinating story. I've not read the full book yet. I've read an excerpt, and uh, the story is one of those uh, uh, sort of page turners. It's hard to put the book down. Uh, so I'm looking forward to doing that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, Ed and I talk about his perspective on the mobile space, the Apple and the Samsung brands, and how the challenges of the category are no longer about hardware, but about digital services and ecosystems and recurring revenue. Enjoy. Hey, Ed, thanks for coming on. Hey, Fergus, it's good to be here. Tell us what your role is and specifically what your responsibilities are as Chief Strategy Officer. Sure. Uh, So I am, I guess, CSO of um, Publicis' relationship with Samsung. Uh, Samsung's, as you can imagine, a very big client, a very big brand. Um, and they, they work with all the best agencies and we just happen to be one of them. We tend to get more of their, um, I tend to work on more of their global level work. Uh, each market has their own local agencies, but what I'm trying to do is really drive the strategy um, for, for, the, for the world uh, before it gets into the, the markets and becomes localized. So that involves working on a lot of their um, flagship launches, which they have about three or four a, a year, uh, new products coming out. Um, yeah, and there's just, a, you can imagine, a lot involved in, in pulling one of those campaigns off. And ironically, wasn't there just a huge launch uh, just yesterday? Yesterday, unpacked. Yeah, so yesterday, um, we actually worked a little bit on that. Um, yesterday was unpacked. They have two unpacking events a year. Tell us about the mobile category, both inside and outside of the U.S., just so we get a, a sense of uh, where the brands stand. I think we spoke, spoke about this a little bit before the call. Is that This is, in my eyes, the, the cola wars of, of the time, right? And, and in the sense that the, the penetration of smartphones in developed markets is, is above 90%. And in developing mar- markets, it's 
in the high 80s. It's really not a lot of people who, if they're on the internet or have a phone at all, don't have a smartphone. I don't think you could find a, a feature phone. That would be one of those old school phones. It'd be, it'd be, you'd have to go out of your way unless you're some kind of drug dealer with the burner phone. So it really is a highly saturated, uh, mature category. And it's very, very dynamic because almost every point of market share that we gain is at the expense of one of our competitors, right? Um, and where for other categories like you know automotive, it took them 50 years to become saturated. You know, uh, It took smartphones about 13 since 2007, if we count the iPhone launch. It seems that outside the U.S. and sort of globally, that Android is the most popular and, and uh, uh, highest selling platform in terms of the operating system. And uh, the iPhone is a much smaller player globally. But within the U.S., it's sort of the opposite, that uh, iPhone is the dominant player and the, the uh, Android operating system uh, is... Uh, uh, seems to have a lot of share opportunity, a lot of opportunity at least to grow. Uh, so do you see the U.S. as being the market where it has the opportunity to gain the most share, or do you see it differently? Well, it's, it's, it's more three-dimensional than that. For the U.S., there's only really two and a half players that matter. It's iPhone, it's Samsung, and it's Google Pixel. Right, so, um, but in in a way, the, the U.S. is a bit of an, an anomaly. It is the most lucrative market. Uh, it's you know probably the most saturated next to Japan uh, or some place like South Korea. But it, it is an anomaly when you look at like Latin America, um, Southeast Asia, Europe. The distribution of market share becomes much more spread out. Right there, you have the Huawei's the Oppos, the Vivos, the Xiaomi's, all those Chinese brands, in addition to iPhone and, uh, and Samsung phones, right? So it really depends which market you're, you, you are in. Uh, iPhone is the spiritual leader of the category. I, I don't think there's any denying that. Uh, on average, like what the iPhone does, it sets the tone for the, for the category, right? For, whether that's fair or not, we can talk about that separately, but it is it is the reality. They do a great job at that, but that doesn't mean Samsung is is weak by any any means. In Southeast Asia, it is the market leader, right? So, in Southeast Asia, uh, Asia, Android is the operating system, but most people, when you say Android phones, they think about Samsung. Uh, briefly, give us a sense of Samsung as a yep. portfolio of brands. I mean, we know in the U.S. at least, we know of Samsung as being a brand associated with appliances, you know, televisions, uh, handsets, uh, etc. Um, in, 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 so I'm thinking in the same way that uh, that uh, the brand is sort of similar to LG, another South Korean brand. Can you give us a sense of how vast it is? in that country and around the world? Well, it goes way beyond that. And uh, to the point where you can't imagine it. So this company is 16% of South Korea's GDP. Walmart is like 1% of the US's GDP. When you leave um, the US uh, or the Western countries where Samsung is a smartphone, a TV, um, home appliances, refrigerators, it's, it's 
it's a lot of things, but when you get into the home court of South Korea, Samsung is an automotive brand. It's an insurance brand. It makes chips. It makes everything. It is six. It, it is like it does shipping. It has its own department stores. It is sixteen percent of the economy, of which Samsung Electronics, and then sub, sub, subsequently, some Samsung Mobile is a piece of that. Let's uh, let's kind of zero in on mobile again, Ed. And I think it was uh, 2000, 2011 when the Galaxy uh, S2 first launched. And it kind of right then was the start of the phone wars between yeah. Apple and Samsung. And these brands have had a history together. Uh, yeah. Samsung had been a major supplier of components uh, for iPods for years. And so this is the first time when the brand sort of came out as a head-to-head competitor uh, for um for, uh, for, uh, for the iPhone in the U.S. Now, uh, the campaign that they launched uh, was a pretty great campaign. It wasn't really something you might expect from, from a tonal perspective uh, from a South Korean brand. Uh, I think it was, it's sort of a challenger position was a little bit unexpected, yet brilliant. Um, but I wanted to talk about the brand and where it stood before the launch of that campaign in 2011. And uh, I want to get it. I know you didn't work on the campaign, but I'm interested in getting a sense of where the brand stood uh, in the year or two leading up to that in the U.S. and mobile. Well, I, I, a lot happened, right? So in, the S2 is, uh, I think the campaign was by 72 and, and sunny, like the next big, big thing is already here. Um, that was that took the brand from like number six to number two. And I think like 18 months. And it was incredibly clever in the sense that it, it it poked apple in a place that apple could not respond because the leader never responds and it really exploited an insight about you know maybe part of why um iphone is so hot is this kind of blind following of a, a cult leader very brilliant guy <laughs> right but that there is technology already available far beyond what's available on the iPhone, um, that for any smart consumer, it would be an obvious choice, right? So that's really what the campaign was trying to do is strategically, it was a challenger play, right? It was a very disruptive challenger play, much in the way that a Pepsi would have done it or a Burger King. And I think the brand new Apple couldn't respond and everything was based in absolute fact. The, the features on the S2 were better at least two years fast, uh, two years ahead of anything on on the iPhone at that time, right? So it was at the at the core, it was still you just put them side by side, and you just can't technically you can't you can't compare the two, right? But it was just to like break through that 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 brainwashing or that waiting in line for the store, you know, or you know you know waiting for the the iPhone to come out. It was to kind of shine a different light on what, what is actually happening here and if it's worth that or if it's worth, if it's better off just buy, buying the better product, which is the, uh, the Samsung. So I'm going to, uh, let me play the spot for the listeners here and we'll play it on the episode page also. But what this was, was, a, was the introduction of the Galaxy S2. And what in essence we're going to be listening to here is a spot that sort of makes light of the behavior, the fanatical behavior of uh, of buyers of iPhones who, as we all remember, would stand out in line for days uh, with this sort of um, um, sort of fanatical thrill 
of actually buying an iPhone. So there was this sort of uh, tribal nature of it. And so what happens here is we see that uh, these kids are all lined up outside and then somebody walks by with the Samsung phone and these uh, Apple iPhone uh, um, fans are distracted by the uniqueness of the Samsung. Here's the spot called the next best thing is already here. Three hours till phone nirvana. Yeah. I am so amped. I could stand here for three weeks. Nine hours down and we're almost in the door. Only seven people stand between us. And Meaning? Yeah, I mean, this is an event. We're going to remember this for the rest of our lives. I think two people just left. Why would they be leaving when we're only nine hours away? Uh-oh. Blogs are saying the battery looks sketchy. If it looks the same, how will people know I upgraded? Doesn't 4G? Say. Is it 4G? It doesn't say. Whoa. What you got there? Not sure. What is that? Guys. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, bro. Can we see your phone? Uh, sure. Can I see it with my hands? Uh, have you seen this thing? Ooh. She totally caught me checking out her phone. Check out the screen. This thing is huge. It's pretty massive. And it's got 4G speed. It's magnificent. Samsung. Samsung? That's a Samsung. Yeah. Is this what adultery feels like? Samsung. Samsung. Pretty big display. It's the next thing, man. Whatevs. I could never get a Samsung. I'm creative. What I really loved about the Samsung campaign, and I think it came out of some of the research that I read, was that there was this sort of uh, tribal nature around Android, the, the operating system, and that um, the, the, uh, the excitement wasn't so much around Samsung. It, was, it wasn't really Samsung versus Apple as much as it was, was the iPhone operating system versus Android. But what was very cool and very smart was the fact that Samsung basically took that and owned it as part of their brand messaging, kind of creating that tribalness and owning that tribalness itself. So it became later this idea of Samsung versus Apple. So it's a, there's an interesting lesson in how that all came out. Yeah. Um, and at that time, there were fewer Android um, phones, right? So Android is, a, is an open system. Right, it's diametrically opposed to a closed walled garden, as beautiful it may be. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, totally that. And, the, and I think the spirit of Android, because it's an open system, is, is a little different, right? It's not. It's based on like experimentation, customization. If you talk, we do a lot of research uh, talking to smartphone owners, and you know, it's pretty clear that the, the, the Samsung or the Android user is is fundamentally different than the iPhone user. In the sense that they want that customization, they want to be able to put widgets on their home screen, where the iPhone user just appreciates simplicity, um, having things taken care of for them, um, and just the, the 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 pristine design of it all. Like it just seamlessly works together. The customization for that that iPhone user probably sounds like work. Are people buying Samsung because they don't want to be seen? carrying around an Apple iPhone, or are they buying it truly for its distinctiveness or its value? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's everything, right? So um, the brand is, is a factor, right? Because uh, Sam, uh, I think um, Apple is, is a luxury good at this point. To your question of whether like people uh, buy Samsung in, a, in opposition to Apple, I'm not sure it's totally that because Apple deserves everything it gets, right? And not in opposition, though, but there are some people 
even if there was an affordable Mercedes-Benz, they still wouldn't drive one because yes, of what it represents. Yes. And, and it's kind of similar to, way, to the way that Audi uh, thinks about itself. I mean, Audi will say that the reason people buy Audis is because of what it doesn't represent. Yes, they're not the BMW driver, right? They're not the a-hole <laughs> uh, stockbroker. So, so this is also this relates back to your what you were talking about before about the success of the um, next best thing uh, campaign. It's kind of why the brand stopped doing it, right? Because there, there is, and it's an ongoing conversation within the company whether to be a challenger brand or to be what Gucci is to Louis Vuitton, right? They, the two don't, the two don't acknowledge, they are equal, or Messi does to Ronaldo. The two respect each other. Um, if you see a friend with a Samsung, you don't question him. You just think he's got different taste. It's a matter of taste, right? It's not a matter of in innovation per se or price or anything. It's a matter of taste and both are equally good. It's easy to pick on the, the leader. And, and frankly, it's what Apple did to IBM Windows, the PC. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you think back to the the Mac versus PC campaign from I think it was the the early two thousands. Um, that was a brilliant campaign and and completely unexpected. And for those of you who don't know it, will uh, it's J- Justin Long played the Mac, and it was uh, I think it was John Hodgman who played the PC character, and it was this great challenger positioning. And it was really the time when Apple was trying to set its its uh, its um, its Mac up as a true alternative to the PC. Uh, here's a, here's the spot. Hello, I'm a Mac, and I'm a PC. Zintai, you okay? No, I'm not okay. I have that virus that's going around. Oh yeah. <laughs> you better you better stay back. This one's a doozy. That's okay. I'll be fine. No, no, do not be a hero. Last year there are 114,000 known viruses for PCs. PCs, not Macs. So you just grab this. One. I think I got a crash. Hey, if you feel like that'll help. Good. I think Samsung is is, is doesn't necessarily want to be a, a classical challenger. That that can be left up to like maybe the Chinese brands. Want to be the an alternative, a legitimate alternative, premium, you know, better tech for those who know, but premium and and equal, equal but different, I think is the best way. So it is an ongoing conversation because the short term, there is definitely short, short term advantages to just keep poking at the leader, right? So Ed, um, since the, the Galaxy uh, campaign, the S2 campaign, has the work changed? Has the message changed? Is it still sort of comparative in nature? Or has it has it evolved? One of the things we're we're thinking about is like the role of these, in, the role of innovation, right? Like, and I'm not Sam. I'm not just bragging about Samsung, but if you just look at like the products they release, like the folding phone, or you know the pen, they, they, it's very clear that they're trying to innovate. You know, I I struggle to articulate what the Samsung brand represents. You know, it doesn't conjure up a feeling for me, and I'm wondering. How do you think about the brand? What feeling do you get when when you think about Apple? I guess for uh, for Apple, I've always thought of it as uh, devices for the creative class. Yeah, and and yeah. I know that it's sort of gone beyond that over time because it's moved beyond devices. It's a much broader offering, and uh, and uh, but there is that feeling that that remains there. It does have a very distinct 
and focused brand. So I suppose my question is, as, a, mm-hmm. as an organization, whether it be in mobile or beyond mobile, is there that sort of priority on creating a brand, a crisp brand? Or is it sort of, is it held back by the very nature of Samsung being this, this massive organization with so many different business divisions? It, you're totally right. Uh, it is definitely a very high priority because brand is such a factor. It's just extremely difficult to do. Um, and, and it's not for the lack of trying. I think one of the, the brilliant things that Apple did was it constructed itself as a religion with temples, you know, a savior, a symbol. Um, it's very, um, what do you call disciples, right? They've almost, um, to their credit, stretched beyond a manufacturing mindset, which is they're more in a, a consumer marketing mindset, luxury good marketing mindset, where a lot of the other brands are still in a manufacturing, automotive, cyclical product launch mindset. Is part of that a, an issue of culture, uh, meaning uh, in South Korea where Samsung is headquartered, is the way that brands are thought about very differently than the way, for example, Apple might think about uh, brands and marketing in general? Apple is, is not just an American brand or a California brand, right? It's a Cupertino brand. It is of that zip code, right? It is, you, you, you feel, you can almost close your eyes and feel like a temperature when you, when you think about where Apple comes from, uh, right? Right, you can. Uh, it's, Samsung is, prides itself in not being a Korean brand, but in a, a global brand. But the advantage that Samsung does have is it is, like I said, truly reflective of the Korean culture, which is like progress at all costs, right? Like they went from like Korean War to the top 10 biggest GDP in like 50 years. It's like progress at all costs. So there's really that sense of like relentless forward, forward, forward that needs, my view, needs to be harnessed and made part of the, the brand story, right? So when you think about when you think about a Samsung, you get that vibe. And if that vibe speaks to you, you know, if you have some of that vibe, this is the brand for you versus the, the Cupertino brand that is like laid back and cool and hip and stuff. Right. I mean, do you, when we look at the fact that handsets these days are running upwards of $1,300, are you expecting that someone, particularly given the sort of, uh, uh, evolution that to, and, and and sort of the, the well, I suppose the the evolution that tends to happen in product development, where we return to cheaper versus more expensive, which is I think been the 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 great surprise of the handset market that prices have been able to increase rather than decrease, but it seems to set up the opportunity for someone to come in and offer a handset that's got you know that's packed with features, but is far more affordable. So I wonder, do you expect somebody to come in, somebody who's going to sort of uh, change that dynamic? Uh, I know others have tried it. I mean, Amazon has tried it. I think uh, others have certainly tried it and failed. But do you expect that to to be what happens and and that it's it, it begins to split apart in terms of hardware versus software? Yeah, it's not going to... I, I, I... 
my prediction is not going to be who you expect. It's not going to be anybody we're talking about right now. At what, what, what Apple is, is doing is very, very smart. Um, and, and Samsung is trying to emulate quickly, creating re- reoccurring subscription revenue as opposed to device by device purchase. Right. So they're, they're going to make their money off like $2 a month at a time. Right. So there we're, we are reaching the point, maybe not two years, but maybe in 10, where literally smartphones as we know it have stopped innovating. There, there's going to be very little hardware innovation. Right. It, there still will be some, but for the most of us, it will feel like, all right. You know, like it, it's like a refrigerator, like you got it. Right. So all the, the, the disruption will come through those other things, those services, um, the, those credit cards. And that's where the real disruption will happen, not from a hardware or device manufacturer, but maybe like an Amazon or Google's trying, right? Google's already doing it, but somewhere else um, that will make the phone, not the hardware interesting again, but the experience of, 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 an, of a smartphone interesting. Just one or two final things. What can other brands or other categories learn from the Apple versus Samsung rivalry? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, it's, it's less David and Goliath in my head, although it, it still is, right? It's more like um, Biden and Trump. Right, and I won't say who is who. Right, like, it doesn't. It doesn't even matter. But like, uh, it's almost like the market is saturated. It is a binary choice in a place like uh, America, in the states. And maybe there's a three parties in other countries, four most. But uh, it, it's really about like values. Right? Like you, you, we have voters in our consumers. They're stuck with the phone for three years. Might as well be four years. Right, an election cycle. There's a lot of symmetry here, and. I'm not sure why it isn't applied like political strategy isn't applied more because there's so many similarities in thinking about smartphone brands as, as different candidates with different values, maybe for different people who approach issues in different ways. There are, there are wedge issues, right? To take, to talk about, for example, you know, Samsung, Samsung is open. Apple is a little bit more let's say, uh, finite, or, you know, or it's a little bit more curated. Like there are wedge issues that, that if you have come to surface for consumers, they, they can make the choice for themselves. But I, I think what is not helpful is to think that it isn't high stakes for consumers, right? It's just like, it's like, it's not like buying gum at all. It is a very intimate thing that they're buying and it needs to be thought more like a vote than, a, than an expensive purchase. I haven't seen a lot written or discussed in our industry around the lessons learned in political strategy, particularly with the focus over the last four to five years. And, and I, think, I think, you know, one of the things I've always thought about is that we are kind of restrained by the assumptions that we make or the rules we think we have to abide by in marketing because they're viewed as being too high yeah. risk or potentially kind of creating backlash. But that, I think, was interesting to look at in terms of recent elections and to understand that there were issues and messages that were thought, or attitudes or tone or words that were thought to be toxic. And so nobody would ever go there. And uh, I think what we've learned in the last few years is that those things that were thought to be 
toxic were touched, those words were used, those strategies were applied. And, and certainly that many of it is uh, sinister in nature. But the reality is that it has been an incredibly effective way to, um, to achieve the goal it set out to achieve, to reach an audience that it, that it, uh, that it wanted to reach out to and to bind that audience together. And so the question becomes whether we can apply some of that thinking and doing it in less of a sinister way uh, to how we, uh, how we communicate in comms and in strategy and whether we need to be, begin to sort of decouple ourselves from assumptions that have possibly held us back. Yeah, we don't have to get political when talking about politics, right, in my view. But like you said, just the language, changing the language changes the thinking. There are parties here. There's tribalism, right? You're locked into the party. There's only so many independents that can switch, right? Just, so, so just thinking about your, your, your audience as voters or your consumers as voters who have a propensity, they, they're in a current state of mind already. They have, you know, they're already in a party. Uh, how do you get them to, to switch out? Is a little different than just like, how do they get them to buy a different brand of phone? Right. There's more there. So I guess it's sort of like a segmentation strategy. It's sort of understanding how tightly an audience is bonded to a particular brand and then recognizing that some of some segments are more prone to switching or considering than others are. So, I mean, it's a, it's an issue of sort of understanding those segments and then messaging against them. Yeah. You can, you can convert anybody, right? Just like you can switch any voter if you're willing to spend a million dollars per voter. Right, but but it's just there. Just there's a degree where I nothing Samsung can do will convert um, an iPhone user who's been using iPhones since 2007, has an iPad, Mac, and HomePod. There's just no. It's just too expensive to do that, right? I might as well buy him a Samsung every year, right? And he still might not use it. So it, it, it has to it has to. That I think that's some of the lessons where it's like thinking politically about it is like what is their current mindset is it even changeable and if it's if it is there are things we can do there if it's maybe there's things we can do there and if it's no there's things we shouldn't do there right we should maybe we shouldn't try to get that person right now ed sue chief strategy officer at publicis working on the samsung mobile business thanks for coming on the showcase it was a pleasure thanks Vargas. thanks ed and we'll see everybody in the next showcase